We are in a series in the Gospel of John, looking at one of the biographies of Jesus, and uh, so I'm going to read for us the passage on which the teaching is based this morning from John 14. Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. This is God's word. Well, um... I have a question to start this morning. How, how would you answer this question? Why don't people want to become Christians? Why do people not want to become Christians? There's probably a lot of really good answers to this question. Let me, let me just give you a couple lists of answers to this question. Well, the first one comes from a, a book by a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York for many years, sadly just passed away. But this is from his experience in pastoring in New York. The first half of this book are seven reasons why people do not want to become Christians in his experience. So, there can't just be one religion. How could a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for so much injustice. And of course, here in Canada, we think of that, you know, this book I think came out in about 2010, but... Post uh, finding of the um, the graves at residential schools, this one has a whole new weight for us here in Canada. How can a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproven Christianity, and you can't take the Bible literally. So it's a pretty good list. Uh, and if you're interested in any of those questions, I would strongly recommend this book. He does a great job. Around the same time, another book came out. Uh, this one was less pastoral-driven and more data-driven. It was an organization called Barna. And they interviewed people, uh, 18 to 35-year-olds in America, once again. And they asked them a question, you know, what do you think of when you think of Christians? And they, they had a few nice things to say, but then here's the other things they had to say, which is that Christians are these things, hypocritical. They're just concerned with pe- people getting saved. They're anti-homosexual, so apologies for the uh, archaic language there. It was 2009. Um, sheltered, they're too political and judgmental. And then in 2016, they they did another survey and followed it up with a new book. A book is called Good Faith. And they just narrowed it down to two things. Christianity is irrelevant, and if you take it seriously, it's dangerous. So pretty good 
pretty good lists. I don't know uh, if you would add to or subtract from those. I don't know what you might have different things that you might say. There's a really good conversation for uh, community groups this week. What are the reasons that people don't want to become Christians? But here's what I think. I think these questions and these concerns that come up here or that you have in your, uh, in your heart or in your neighbor's heart, they don't just affect people that are outside the church that are coming in. They affect us here too. They affect all of us. And I think they're the same reasons that people would give out there are the same reasons that we are hesitant about our faith. Maybe I, I'm, I'm you know, uncomfortable to say that I'm a Christian or to um, put Jesus at the center of my life, to go all in with God. Or, God forbid, to talk about God in public. The same reasons. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he says this is, he calls this cross-pressure. Basically, this is what he means. Anytime we want, we're thinking, like, I want to move forward with my faith. Like, I'm going to really hope in Jesus. I'm going to, I feel compelled to move. We feel these headwinds coming back at us. Of all the reasons that people don't believe. All the doubts. All the historical trauma pushing us around. And we're just cross-pressured. It's very, very hard for us to move forward. So, it's a good start to a sermon, hey? I'll just stop here. We'll all go home. Um, how does this relate to the passage that we're reading this morning? So, I want to remind us again of what's happening in, in the uh, upper room where Jesus is with his fr- friends at the Last Supper. He sits down at a table with his closest friends right before he dies. And they're in a very, very different situation than we are today. Like, I don't think any of them sitting at the table were very concerned whether, you know, Taylor Swift is going to get to the Super Bowl next week. It's a big concern. Or they're, you know, not that concerned about another year of inflation going up. So their concerns are slightly different. But at the same time, there are people who are living in a time when there was loads of pushbacks. Loads of reasons that people were skeptical about Jesus. And they are that same mixture of faith and doubt, I think, that we have. And so Jesus sits down with them at the table, and he starts by serving them. He strips down, and he washes their feet, and very slowly he walks with them through who he is. He reminds them, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. This is what I want you to remember, and here's what I invite you into. And in the same way, that's the invitation open for us at the table with Jesus when we come to study this passage. That Jesus carefully comes with a servant heart towards us, and he says, he wants to remind us of the core things. This is who I am. This is what I've come to do. This is what I want you to remember, and this is who I invite you to become. And so in this specific passage, I think Jesus really clarifies some core and realigns us on some really core things about what it means to follow him. So he he clarifies, I want to do three things this morning. Talk about what this passage says about what Jesus offers. What does Jesus offer? How do we get the things that Jesus offers? And then how do we share that with other people? You want to go to the next slide, Hillary, please? What does Jesus offer? How do we get those things? And then how do we share that with others? Pretty core things. So let's look at the first one. What does Christianity have to offer? As you might have noticed, and as I said last week, this passage, as we read it, it's like a giant bowl of spaghetti. Just noodles of thought, just kind of circling around and around and around. It's very, very hard to follow. But in this passage, Jesus offers some pretty amazing things. Let's just take a look at a few of them. Verse 18, he says, You won't be alone. You won't be orphans. I will be with you. God will be with you. You will be part of God's family. Verse 21 and 23, he says that that you will experience love, the love of of God. Verse 26, this leadership of the Holy Spirit, that God will actually lead and guide you. 27, he says you will have peace. And then finally, in verse 28, he says you'll have joy. So I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good list, you know? If if, um, my background and my training is actually not in preaching, and you're like, we know, we can tell, (laughs) 
It's not a surprise. Uh, it's actually in psychology and business. And so if you came to me with a pitch and you said, look, I have this product, and I think it will, it will give people love, joy, peace, leadership, and uh, you know all these things, I'd be like, let's get marketing here. Like, we're going to go, let's go to market right away and see how much money we can make with these things. So here's the question. Jesus is offering all these things. Why aren't people flocking to Jesus? That's the question. And the Bible actually gives several answers to this question, but I want to just look at the passage that we're looking at today. And we're just going to look at peace because we don't have time for all of them. Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. Now, in, in the Greek, uh, in which this is, was written in, the word here is arene, arene. And this is a very common word that was used, uh, and it kind of meant an absence of hostility in one's life or in one's community or one's nation. So it was used as both a greeting and farewell. People would say peace to one another. May your home experience peace. But it was often thought of in terms of the whole nation. Uh, are we a, a group of a people that are experiencing peace? And you might have heard of the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. Rome accomplished peace by conquering all the other nations. That was what was thought of. And although we live 2,000 years later, I think there's a a similarity to how we think of peace. Um, Our aspirations, I think, for peace, though, are slightly bigger and smaller at the same time. What I mean by that is I think our aspirations for peace uh, are bigger in the sense that we don't just want peace for one country. We want world peace. And as a globalized place, you know, we've got people from, that come from cultures from all over the world here, and we're inundated with news from all over the world all the time. So we know these wars that are happening in different places in our world. They're, they affect us in a very real way. And so when we hear Jesus say peace, we think, oh, like the, all of that should stop. But we also individualize it. We make it much smaller. We, we think of peace on a very personal level. I want to experience peace in my life. And so that, I think, means something like a level of stability for me and the people that I care most about. That things come like, become like less chaotic and slightly more controllable. So I might say it's almost like peace of mind. That's what I'd like. That things are going to be okay. That I know I'm going to be able to save enough to send my kids to university. That I'll be able to retire. It's like something like that exhale that comes with stability in our lives. Peace also, I think, for us means something like an absence of the barriers to who I want to become. So I, I want to become someone in this world, and peace would be not, nothing stopping me. I would experience peace in my life that I could do the things and be the person that I want. And then finally, I think it means something like just zen out. Peace just means like chill, you know, that I'm just slightly more relaxed than normal. That pace of life has slowed down. So um, what I think we do is we take these definitions of peace that we have. So the ancient definition of peace or our current definitions of peace. And what we do is we map them onto Jesus. He offers peace, and so this is what we think of. So in the ancient, uh, the people sitting around the table with Jesus, they would take their definition of peace and they would say, Jesus says, I'm going to give you peace. That's what they're thinking. Instead of Rome being the conquering army and the conquering nation, the Jewish people will become the conquering nation. There's going to be a savior that's going to come. This is, this is all over their history. The savior would come. They have no problem with that word. And what he's going to do is he's going to restore Israel to this grandiose uh, military power. And, and, and then they will experience peace. And any nation that stands in their way will get crushed. And other nations will experience peace because of that. That's their vision of what they think Jesus is going to do sitting around this table when he says the word peace. And it's the same thing for us. When Jesus says the word peace, we think, oh yeah, then, you, you know, if you're the the God of peace, you should stop all the wars in the world. And you should give me a bit more stability in my life and take away the barriers for who I want to become and just bring a level of chill, you know, to my life. But let's keep reading. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, but my my peace I give to you. Or sorry, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
I do not give as the world gives. So Jesus is saying something very important for us here. He, he's actually saying his peace is different, and it also comes in a very different way. And, and Jesus is referencing here a different word for peace. That's the word in the Bible, the Hebrew word that's shalom. Now, it's really hard to, to do this word justice in just a few minutes uh, because it's so packed with significance and with story and with resonance. But I'm going to try to just help us understand a little bit about what this word means. Shalom is not just a word that means peace like we think of it. It is like a whole way of, of, of living. It's a cosmic story that's being told. And so the Bible tells the story something like this. There is this God. We've looked at this God in the last few weeks, Yahweh Elohim. It's this, this God who is above all other gods. Last week we looked at this God is, is somehow so big that it is three in one. That it is a, a one and a they all at the same time. This cosmic, eternal community of love. And, and so this God has existed before all time. And then God creates people. And so the right relationship, if you want to go to the next slide, the right relationship is that we are people that are made in God's image, it says. So the Bible says we're a little bit less than God. And when we're in that right relationship with God, where we are looking up at him, we are worshiping him, we find our identity. This is the stuff that, that uh, Jesus is talking about here. We, we experience love, the love of this God. We experience our identity. We know who we are. We're at right relationship with ourselves. We're in right relationship with God. And then when we are in community with other people, when they are also putting Jesus and God at the center of the world, then we experience right relationship not only with ourselves, but with each other. There's this absence of hostility, but also this ability for us to work together. The people don't become like they are in our, in our world today. They aren't competitors, and they aren't an audience for us to just perform in front of. They actually are fellow image bearers that we can work along with in order for, to see this shalom, to see flourishing happening in the whole world. And then there's this one last component that God creates this whole world that we are to cultivate as, as uh, Genesis 2 says that we are to be priests in, Abad and Shamar, to care for and to steward and to cultivate and to create culture that also keeps God, God at the center. And so this is the picture. I know this, I've made some ugly graphics in the past. I feel like this one's it's pretty high up there, but I apologize. But this is the picture of Shalom. It's much bigger. It's cosmic flourishing. That's what Jesus is referencing here. This vision of how the world could be. God at the center, everything coming in and around him, but everything in right relationship with each other in ever-increasing fashion. This is cosmic flourishing. And, and so this is the picture. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he knows that this is not the world that he enters into. There's brokenness in all of our relationships, in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others, in our relationship with the created world. But Jesus introduces himself as someone who is restoring shalom. He is the shalom bringer. So he'll come to people in the, in the biographies about him. He'll come and he'll introduce himself to people, people who don't know who they are, or people who are in broken relationships with each other, or people who have been products of systemic abuse. And he'll come to them and he will say he will notice them. He will recognize them. And he's saying, I am bringing shalom to you. I'm restoring this picture of the world. And he calls a people that are sitting around a table with him out of this world of brokenness. And he says, this is what I'm returning you to. This is what my life, my death and resurrection will make possible. Once again, that we can live as people who look like this. And we get glimpses in the life of Jesus or a picture in the life of Jesus is what shalom looks like. And we get glimpses of that within the church throughout history. But Jesus' resurrection, the Bible also says, is this guarantee. It's like this down payment of a future of shalom. That's this picture that's painted. When all tears will be dried, when all hostility will seek, 
when the brokenness inside of us will be healed, the brokenness inside of our world will be healed. And God will come, Jesus will come once again, and we will sit with him at a table. And we will work with him for the restoration of the world in the garden city of God. This is the picture that Jesus is talking about when he says shalom. See, it's much bigger than just an absence of hostility, although that's included. It's also way bigger than the relaxation that you feel for 90 minutes when you go to the spa. Or, you know, how you feel for however long when you get high on the beach. Or the security that comes from just your mutual funds performing slightly better than average. And it's definitely available to more people than those of us who could just afford to go on a private beach vacation somewhere warm. The story that Jesus is telling is so much bigger. It is a promise. It is a story. It is a restoration of what was always meant to be, cosmic flourishing, that God is accomplishing in the world. And it's open to everyone and anyone who is willing to join with Jesus in this story. So let's get back to our question here that I asked at the very beginning. Why don't people believe Why do we find it so hard to follow Jesus? Well, according to this passage, one of the reasons is that we let our cultures and our brains define what Jesus is about, what he's offering. And when we hear the words joy and peace and hope and identity, we all have definitions of those already. And when we do, and we we think that Jesus is talking about those things, we just set ourselves up for a huge letdown when it comes to Jesus, actually. So Jesus was pretty, he's always been pretty terrible at delivering on our cultural expectations of these words. And I can say that with full assuredness because that's, he was terrible with doing that with the disciples. They thought, oh, peace, great. We're going to go, let's go conquer the bad guys. And Jesus is like, actually, just, just this minor difference, I'm actually going to let them conquer me. And he tells them again and again and again, and they don't get it. And then he dies. He's conquered by the baddies that they thought that they were going to be conquering. And what do the disciples do? They're like, Jesus, like, I guess he's not the Prince of Peace. Bit of a liar, if I'm going to be honest. And it's kind of stupid to believe in him. You know, everybody told me that. It was kind of childish of me. So, you know, I probably should just go back to my job. And that's what they do. And we laugh at them and we think, oh, these guys, so... So dumb. And that is how the disciples are portrayed. It's actually one of the reasons why a lot of historians would say there must be something historical about these narratives because these guys should, if they're writing the story and they're portraying themselves like idiots, it's kind of a weird thing to do. (laughs) We laugh at them, but we do the same thing. We think, oh, Jesus brings peace. Great. My life is, I'm going to put my hope in Jesus because my life's kind of out of control. So it's going to become more in control. And then what happens? You follow Jesus and turns out your life gets even more out of control. And so what do we do? We get angry. Stupid Jesus. I guess he's not the Prince of Peace. He didn't deliver on what he promised for me anyways. And and to be honest, I guess it was kind of childish for me to believe. All my friends told me I shouldn't anyways. And so we exit. Maybe we fully exit faith. Maybe we just existentially exit. Maybe we just go 25% of the way in with Jesus and we just get a 75% better financial planner. And we're like, that's how I'll get peace. We just do it in different ways. Um, But Jesus never promised that our lives would get any better. That's not his promise. He never promised that our personal visions of peace would happen. He promises shalom, which is a very different thing. It's a much, much bigger thing. You know, we we sang a song this morning, and we said, you always satisfy. I don't know if you ever think about the words of the lyrics that you sing, 
There's another song that's like, we just say it again and again and again. It's like, Jesus will never let me down. And it just goes on and on and on. And I, I don't know if you ever just sit there and think, I think, like, do you ever look around and are like, are, like is, are other people not being let down by Jesus? I, I don't know about you. I'm let down by Jesus all the time. All the time. I, I am unsatisfied by Jesus regularly. Because you know why? My dreams are just too small. They're way too small. Here's a good question. I ask myself this question fairly regularly. You can ask it to yourself when you're let down by Jesus. Is this dream that I'm dreaming, this hope that I have, this definition of peace or love or whatever, is it big enough that the God of the universe would have to come here, would have to serve, would have to die, and would have to rise in order for this dream to come true? Is this dream that I have, does it need that kind of God? And here's what I find just personally when I ask myself that question. Often the answer is no. I'm just being very, very personal. You know, Jesus didn't have to die and rise so that my life, you know, got a little more secure. Jesus didn't have to die and come again so that my life went a little bit easier. You know, that, that the, the, the grade or the, um, yeah, the grade of my life went from an eight-degree grade to a two-degree grade. That's a biking reference, if you guys don't understand, so it's okay. Jesus didn't come, and he didn't have to die and rise for those things to happen. He, he came, and he died, and he rose again, so that I might be able to die and rise again, too. That I would become a new human being, that I would receive new life. That my dreams also would follow that pattern of Jesus. That the dreams, the small dreams that I had, would die and rise. That I would learn to let my middle-class Canadian dreams die that I might gain the big dreams of God's kingdom. That is the offer for every single one of us today. Why don't people follow Jesus? Why do we struggle to follow Jesus wholeheartedly? It's because our dreams are too small. Our vision is too small of what God actually wants to do in our lives. And the invitation of Jesus is to come to him and let him redefine those things for you. Not to make them smaller, but to make them God-sized. To make them bigger. They're not just pieces, not just for you. Love is not just for you. Identity is not just for you. It's for the whole cosmos that God has come to restore. Well, you might say to me, well, okay, that sounds a little better. I'm kind of interested, this idea of shalom. How do I get this? How do I get this offer from Jesus? How can I get a piece of the peace? Now, the general answer that Christians will give you is that you have to believe And I do want to point out, that is what Jesus says as well. It's important. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He says that earlier. But I want to point out that Jesus seems, in the passage that we read, to emphasize something um, a lot more than just believing. So let's take a look at what he says. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. Jesus is pretty clearly, or maybe not so clearly, but effectively communicating again and again what he wants. Not just belief, but that love is obedience to him. To do, to obey. This is the importance. And if you read this whole passage, like the whole Upper Room Discourse, you'll see that this, in the spaghetti bowl of what Jesus is talking about, this is a noodle that just keeps coming up again and again and again and again. Earlier, he says this, if you know these things, that's good, but you're blessed if you do them. Next week, Mitch will be preaching on John 15. You'll see Jesus say it again. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
again and again, he just says the same things. It's one of the most clear things Jesus says when he sits down with the table, at the table with his friends. Do you want peace? Do you want this cosmic vision of shalom to be part of your life? Do you want love? And I'm talking about love that's bigger than lust or like. I'm talking about this eternal community of love that you're invited to enter into. Do you want joy? Not just circumstantial joy that you get when you're like, oh, something good happened. I got a promotion. I got a good Christmas gift. The Bible, when it talks about joy, it's talking about a river that's in the center of our being, that like waters us. It's not just, a, you know, a, the way that we are as people. Like, we don't all have to become like Mitch, you know, just like, woo, uh, all the time. That's not going to happen. But this joy that wells up inside of us, that we become those people that, wa- that it waters our lives and it waters the lives of people around us. We can become this kind of community, the Bible says. Do you want that kind of joy? Then Jesus says, obey what I teach. Do what I say. Don't just believe, put those beliefs into action. That's the, that's the tie between those two things. Understand what Jesus teaches. Believe it, but then he says, do it. Because God does not just want your brain. He wants fully embodied humans living in this way that looks like Jesus. That's what he wants. Now, I understand that that might be one of the most unpopular things I could possibly say in our city. It's just come up here and be like, all right, Obey. Got it? Let's go. Uh, That's just not going to happen. So I spent a bit of time this week just pondering why. Why is it so hard for us to hear this specific teaching of Jesus? Why is it so hard for us to obey? And I want to be 100% clear. Like, this is me too. Okay, this isn't just you and like, guys, come on, obey. Like, I'm obviously doing. I struggle with this too. There's five people in our family. Four of us are firstborns. Okay? So just power struggles everywhere. You might wonder, how did that happen? My wife and I are both firstborns. We thought it was a good idea to marry each other. Don't know why. Then we had twins, both firstborns. So there's this lots... And then our youngest daughter, poor kid, just everyone telling her what to do all the time. And she's like, don't tell me what to do. And uh, in fact, that's a joke in our house. Somebody will say, like, pass the ketchup, and we'll go, don't tell me what to do. Because that is the number one thing we don't want. So why... Here's the question. Why are we a city of people, me included that just don't want to be told what to do? Why is, like, blind obedience one of the things we would just, like, look down on the most of anybody? Why is it hard for us to commit to anyone or anything long-term? Why is it so hard to hear these words of Jesus obey? Well, I thought about this a lot this week, and uh, there's a lot of reasons, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Again, a really great uh, conversation for community group. But um, my mind was drawn to a book, and you're like, wow, shocker. Um, (laughs) This book is written by a guy named David Brooks. Uh, he's an American secular cultural critic. Uh, he's a great author. He's written, he writes regularly in the New York Times. Um, he's written many best-selling books. Uh, but the specific book that I want to talk about this morning is this book. It's called Bobo's. It's my favorite uh, title, Bobo's in Paradise. Okay, let me tell you wh- where this uh, title comes from. So Brooks left America for about five years, and he came back, and he realized uh, that a new group of people were emerging. So he said, in the history of uh, America, there's two groups. So there's the bourgeoisie and the bohemians. And here's how he defines them. He says, the bourgeoisie were the square, practical ones. They defended tradition and middle-class morality. They worked for corporations, lived in suburbs, and went to church. Meanwhile, the bohemians are the free spirits who flouted convention. They're the artists, the intellectuals, the hippies, and the beats, or the beatniks. And what he noticed when he came back, so these two groups have been at war with each other in American history, and he noticed when he came back that they had actually merged into a new group. They weren't bourgeoisie and bohemians, they were bourgeoisie, bohemians, or bobos. He put two and two together. 
right? So this is a fascinating and hilarious book. He calls it Comic Sociology. It's really good. Um, But here's why it matters today. Brooks writes this. These bobos define our age. They are the new establishment. Their hybrid culture is the atmosphere we all breathe. Their status codes now govern social life, and their moral codes give structure to our personal lives. So this group actually uh, creates the atmosphere that we live in. And I think, I've read this book a couple times, probably 60 to 80% of it is very, very true in Vancouver. Like, we want this upper middle class bohemian life at the same time. Like, we want to live in this beautiful penthouse condo in Coal Harbor, but at the same time, we want to take our Delica, you know, out for mountain hiking or something like that, full of Arcteryx gear, and then we're going to go for a mindfulness retreat with the Dalai Lama afterwards. That is like, this meshing together is 100%, in my opinion, Vancouver life. So, so Brooks, he categorizes uh, all of this, and, in, and then he has a section on spirituality, which is really important for us today. And he says, one of the key things that Bobos love in spirituality is um, what he calls spiritual freedom. So it's a long couple quotes, but they're so good. He says, Bobos may become active in churches or synagogues, but they're not interested in having some external authority, the Pope, the priest, or the rabbi, or John Howe, or Jesus, tell them how to lead their lives. Militant secularism is no longer on the rise. That was the big fear of the 90s, that everybody would come an atheist. That's not true unless you're on Reddit or X. Now, that's not true in Vancouver either, right? People aren't military, like most people aren't military atheists. Most people return to religion, but they are not content to just have one religion. They dabble in several simultaneously. Princeton sociologist Robert Worthnow reports on a 26-year-old who describes herself as a Methodist, Taoist, Native American, Quaker, Russian, Orthodox, Buddhist Jew. We laugh. At least one of your neighbors has that tattoo. (laughs) This is not to say that Bobo congregants are not rigorous. They adhere to dietary restrictions and the like with extraordinary rigor. Read vegan. But somehow that rigor is without submission. Whereas earlier believers felt that paradoxically freedom was achieved through total submission to God's will, to obedience, blind obedience of that sort is just not in the Bobo mental repertoire. Among Jews, for example, there's a growing movement of young modern Orthodox who know Hebrew, study the Torah, and observe kosher laws. They are rigorous observers, but they also pick and choose discarding those ancient rules that don't accord with modern sensibilities, pushing back from biblical teachings whenever those teachings clash with pluralism, with any teaching that implies that Judaism is the one true faith and that other faiths are inferior or in error. And this is a key sentence for us. This is orthodoxy without obedience. Indeed, flexidoxy. This word that he coined. And to me, this is Vancouver Spirituality 101. Orthodoxy without obedience. Obedience. So for Jesus to come and say, obey me, it's like a, the cardinal sin, right? We think, oh, sorry, did you think I was in, I'm in the wrong line. I'm not in that line. I'm not in the obedience line. I'm in the spiritual buffet line. That's where I am. I make the choices around here. Don't tell me what to do. But here's the question that Brooks asks. Can flexidoxy lead to spiritual fulfillment? Can this value that we have of spiritual freedom lead to the things that Jesus is saying? Not just a little bit of peace, but shalom. Of cosmic, eternal love in the triune God. Of a joy that wells up in us like a river. Can flexidoxy, can spiritual fulfillment lead to that? And here's what Brooks says. 
Bobos talk about tradition, roots, and community, but they're just paying lip service to these virtues. When push comes to shove, they always choose personal choice over other commitments. They move out of communities when a better job comes along. They abandon traditions and rules they find tiresome. They divorce when their marriages become unpleasant. They leave the company when they get bored. They fall away from church or synagogue when it becomes dull or unrewarding. And this is self-defeating. Because at the end of all this movement and freedom and self-exploration, they find they have nothing deep and lasting to hold on to. The thing we are in danger of losing with our broad, diverse lives is a sense of belonging, or we could say peace or love. A person who limits himself or herself to one community or one spouse is going to have deeper bonds to that community or that spouse than the person who experiments throughout life. A person who surrenders to a single faith is going to have a deeper commitment to that one faith than the person who zigzags through a state of curious agnosticism. The monk in the monastery does not lead an experimental life, but perhaps he is able to lead a profound one. And so we get in Bobo life a world of many options, but maybe not a life of do-or-die commitments. And maybe not a life that ever offers access to the profoundest truths, the deepest emotions, or the highest aspirations. Jesus' words, shalom, love, joy, identity. Maybe in the end, the problem with this attempt to reconcile freedom with commitment, virtue with affluence, autonomy with community, is not that it leads to some sort of catastrophic crack-up or some picturesque slide into immorality. He's saying, we don't become walking, you know, Las Vegases by this type of life. It doesn't lead to those things, but rather it leads to too many compromises and spiritual fudges. Many people who try to have endless choice end up with semi-commitments and semi-freedoms. Maybe they end up leading a life that is moderate but flat. Their souls being colored with shades of gray, they find nothing heroic, nothing inspiring, nothing that brings their lives to a point. Some days I look around and I think we've been able to achieve these reconciliations only by making ourselves more superficial, by simply ignoring the deeper thoughts and the higher ideals that would torture us if we actually stop to measure ourselves according to them by these big, beautiful things that Jesus offers. Sometimes, he says, I think we're too easy on ourselves. Why should we obey Jesus? Why should we listen to his commands? You know, on one hand, I want to remind us of the words from Julian Barnes that I quoted a couple weeks ago. Why should we listen to Jesus? Because he's God, for goodness sakes. And that should be enough, especially if he's this kind of God that would be willing to sit down at the table and wash his friend's feet, that would be willing to come and to serve you and me and to die for us. I think, to me, I can't think of someone better to follow. But Brooks is pointing out another reason. Maybe we should obey God's command because the only way to experience the life that we were made for, a full human life, full of love, joy, identity, peace, family. See, maybe God's invitation for us is not coming from some sort of weird narcissistic king who just wants to like imperialize us and make clones, which is what I think we often think of. And maybe it's more coming from someone who's just absolutely desperate and wants the absolute best for you and for me and for us, which is not a flat life, a life full of semi-commitments and semi-freedoms, a life with, with nothing heroic, and nothing inspiring, an alienated, non-resident life 
as we talk about here. Jesus didn't have to die and rise again for you and I to live that kind of life. We can do that all on our own. Maybe instead the King of Kings, the Bible says, became human. And he sat at a table with his friends and he washed their feet. And then he was stripped naked. And he gave his life, as this passage says, in obedience to the Father. And then he was raised to life once again so that you and I might join in that pattern of life. That we might also learn how to die and rise in obedience to the Father that our lives might be full. That our lives might join in the full color picture of what it means to be human that's painted by Jesus. And here's the absolutely amazing thing we may find if we do that. If we're willing to give ourselves over to the obedience to God as Jesus did, we may find that we gain a depth to our lives, a gravitas that we just couldn't have imagined previously. Something that we couldn't have even known was there. Like Brooks says, our lives might become like the monk. Less experimental. We'll narrow our lives, which doesn't mean less creative. But less experimental, but much more profound. Maybe less Instagrammable, but at the same time, way more beautiful. That our lives begin to not just take the shape of another ordinary life, but actually they take the shape of, of God. We become like this triune God that we talked about last week that our lives could look like that. And here's what Jesus says. If we give ourselves to that life, that is the absolute best advertisement for Jesus that we could ever offer our city. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, look, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And I'll send the counselor to you, and he'll be with you. He'll be my presence with you, because I'm going away. Remember all that weird stuff? I'm going away. I'm coming back. And he says, here's the thing about the Spirit. The world won't be able to see him, but you will. You will. And if you obey my commands, then the world will see him through you. That is the answer to Thomas's question. He's like, Jesus, how are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world? And Jesus is like, no, 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 don't get it twisted here. I'm going to reveal myself to you so that the world will see. That is the way that people will know. And here's the last reason why people, I think, in this passage aren't becoming Christians, because we've screwed this up. We've made telling people about Jesus all about the words that we use all about communication. And so we think when we need to tell people about Jesus, maybe it's not really working, so maybe we should just do it louder, like this. Just get a bigger bullhorn. You know, more signs. Get out to Granville. Get on a box, right? I don't know what, I don't really understand the whole box idea. Why standing on a milk crate? You're like, now people will take notice. Or, you know, maybe we should be funnier. We'll do it fun. That's what I'm trying to do. It's not working out super well. (laughs) Or, you know what? Let's get bigger billboards. The last hell billboard, we used 150 font. Let's go to 250, right? That's going to get people. Or let's do more relevant gospel pitches. Let's make it relevant. Like, hey, millennials, God gets you. You know, he got you. he's got you. You like to take selfies? Jesus liked to take selfies, you know, that kind of idea. This passage is telling us something different. How will people see the invisible God? How will people know that there is a presence of the Spirit that dwells with us and among us. How might people be able to see a vision of peace that is bigger than the tiny visions of peace that we get locked into? This passage is super clear. It's through our collective witness. It's through us allowing ourselves to believe the bigger story, as scary as that might be, to be invited to it. It's to living a life of of, of obedience, just as Jesus did, and to being attentive to the presence of God in our midst. To be people who sit around the table with Jesus at the center. That's the invitation. You know, Francis Schaeffer, he famously said this, that this is the final apologetic 
the church. We are the ones that are the final apologetic for the world to show them that there might be something bigger, that there might be something different, that there might be a portal to another world. There might be this God who offers this different kind of love and peace and joy and identity. And, and here's one of the most exciting things for me. This is already happening here. I don't want to talk about it like it isn't happening. And I'm not saying it's not happening in other churches. I just don't, I don't pastor there, so I don't know. But it is happening here. That colleagues of ours, friends of ours, neighbors of ours, the Bobos of Vancouver are taking notice in small ways. They're taking notice of your willingness to obey God, to open ourselves up to family in a different way, to believe that peace might not just be something small, but something big. Our shared life together is being noticed. Let me just tell you a quick story here as we close. An example of this from my own life. So a while ago, I had a friend, and he joined us for a gathering. Not a Christian. I was shocked, okay? He comes in, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to prep my sermon. It's a, you know, it's a classic five out of ten, right, my sermon. You're like, we know, we got it, okay, yeah. And so I'm, this guy shows up, and I'm like, oh, boy, I like start praying. I'm like, God, just, just get it to a seven. Come on. Just do some, do some, I don't know how you do it. Press on the gas. I don't sure how these things work. So I get up. The service goes well. Uh, I preach my sermon. I thought it was probably a seven, you know. It was all right. And uh, so later in the week, I connect with my friend who came. And uh, I said to him, you know how you try to do it when you're, like, not trying to... You're trying to... Yeah, we're all cool, you know. Local sports team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, I noticed uh, you were um, at, uh, you know, the church gathering on Sunday, you know. Um, just trying to be as non-awkward as possible, which is really hard for me. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he's like, yeah, it was, it was good. It was interesting. And I'm, like, thinking, yeah, how was the sermon, you know? <laughs> he said to me, I don't remember the sermon. <laughs> It's just like, you ever see a balloon just lose, just like, here's what he said. Oh, um, but this amazing thing happened. You guys had a person who came and they just told their story, which we often do. We didn't do it today. Uh, There's a baby dedication that got rescheduled, but we often have people come and tell their story. And, And this person just, he said, they just cried. They just started talking and then they just started crying because what was going on in their life was really hard. And you just let them cry. But there was almost a sense in the room that something was happening. And then the person beside them just prayed for them. And you guys like put your hands out. It was weird, this really weird thing that you all did. And it made me feel uncomfortable at the same time. Like it felt like you were with that person. Like there was almost like a presence in that room. And he said, If I ever come to a church, it will be that kind of a church. That's what I want, is is just to believe, like to be with people who are with me and maybe believe there's something a little bit more. God is doing that. God is doing that in our midst. And God's spirit is at work in and through you. See, people, I think they fundamentally want to believe in something bigger. They really do. And they want to be with people who believe in something bigger who aren't just also talking about the same brain-sized dreams that everybody else in this world has. And we're all just clamoring over each other to try to make slightly bigger. People want to, to have hope that there might be another way and might be another world. And it's slowly happening. And it doesn't mean your friends are necessarily going to come to you and be like, how must I be saved, good sir? It doesn't mean it always look like that. It's going to happen in a myriad of different ways. But that's the role that we have to play. That's the honor that God gives us. He says, I'm going away, but I'm putting my spirit here with you that you actually might be a witness to me.
this triune God. That's the role that we are invited to play as his people. Not to people who are becoming super successful or people who are just doing so much better than everybody else in the city, but a people who have made a home for the Spirit of God. That's what's on offer for us as God's people. That we, by bending our lives into the shape of Jesus' life, by learning obedience, by allowing him to expand the dreams that we have for ourselves and our family and for our community to God-sized dreams, that we might actually be a people who look like God, a signpost to a different world. That's what's on offer for us. Will, you, will we be those people who are allowing ourselves to do that, to learn to dream bigger dreams, to see a bigger vision, to bend ourselves into obedience to the Savior so that some people, the bobos of our city, might see and worship Jesus. Let's pray to close. Jesus, we thank you for these words. Um, as hard as they can be to understand and even make sense of in the way that they're even written, um, there's always an invitation. So, Spirit, we welcome you to this time, and we just ask that you would invite us uh, for each of us. Um, as we now practice coming to the table together, may we be restored into your story. Uh, may we learn how to walk away, as painful as it might be, from those small dreams. Uh, may we learn to be satisfied in you, as we sang earlier. And so we give you this time, we pray these things, and we just pray in your amazing power and strength that you would make us into a people that look like you. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.